Talk Recorded live. Hello. This is William Fink. This is Chris DeGenier on Talk Show. It is Friday, December 2nd, 2011. 2012 is almost here. That'll make some people nervous. This may be one of my lengthier programs, but before we begin, I have a brief comment. Some people bristled at my Ross's attitude of last weekend. Twice as many people thanked me. I can only say that you can spend all of your resources and all of your time building the strongest walls. And if you allow a single wolf free reign in a sheepfold, it is all for naught. Or if the arrows come over the wall, yet you do not sound the trumpet, it is all for naught. This is not a time for relaxation and enjoyment. Joshua Christ our Savior said that he would not enjoy the fruit of the vine until he could drink it with his fellows in his kingdom. We are not there yet. And that's all I'll say on, on, on that point. Last week, I kind of stumbled around in the middle of my presentation because I couldn't find my Daniel 70 Weeks notes um, explaining the 70 Weeks Kingdom of Daniel the Prophet found in Daniel Chapter 9. They weren't a, a matter of the program. It, it's just that I have a large website and, and forgot where I put them, but that's okay because that led me to decide that I should be – I should probably cover that at length. We have three prophecies – well, we have three in the Gospels, and, and I've already covered Matthew – we have three discourses by Christ which discuss the, the destruction of Jerusalem and, and, and which, you know, elucidate his and, and record his sacrifice for us and, and his propitiation for us on our behalf. And it's only fair that during one of the three, I talk at length about Daniel's 70 weeks kingdom and 70 weeks prophecy rather than just going over it superficially. So here we are. I'm going to talk about the history and the chronology of that at great length. Not that I know it all, but, but, but I believe that what I do know is probably very close to being correct. From there, I will proceed with, with the rest of Matthew chapter 13 and, and the last two-thirds of it. Well, we'll go over it all, but, but I'll give the, um, the parts that we already covered last week another cursory treatment and, and, and mention some things from slightly different perspectives. But we will um, begin with Daniel 70 weeks, and then we'll finish Mark 13. Welcome, and thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh. If non-Jews would stop listening to the Jewish-controlled propaganda concerning Christianity and actually take the time to investigate Christianity, if they took as much time investigating Christianity that they, would, that they usually take glued in front of their nightly sitcom, then they would know that Christianity is true. If they actually investigated it, they would know that it's true, and they would know that there are many infallible grounds, infallible proofs supporting its veracity. It was not by mistake that so many generations of our European forefathers were Christians. 
It is not by mistake that our ancient forefathers dropped many of their pagan attitudes for Christian knowledge and Christian morals, even though, of course, they would not depart from many of their ho certain holiday customs. Today, most Europeans spit in the faces of their fathers. They do so because their primary source of education has been the Jewish-controlled media. These notes concerning the 70 weeks kingdom at Jerusalem, which was not technically a kingdom for most of its history, although it was an entity of its own. These notes concerning the kingdom and the time from the original grant by Cyrus, the Persian king, of a return to Jerusalem of those in captivity to the time of Christ and his passion will be discussed at length here. They employ mostly biblical sources, and one must understand that these sources are seemingly seemingly quite imperfect, even to the point where the historian Josephus was also very confused. These notes on this topic are considered to be an ongoing project. I, I hope to be able to, to perfect them as my studies proceed through life. I mean, it's well, life and, and the Bible and history, they're a lifelong study, and, and we can always add to our knowledge, there is no doubt. And, and I hope to revisit them whenever new information becomes available to me, what, which I can use to compare these notes. I, I think that after these notes and, and after they're read and explained, you might have a different opinion of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Not that I'm criticizing them. To show that this, that this period is well recorded in history, I, I'd like to go over the Persian kings of, of the time of the return to Jerusalem by the remnant of the Judean captivity, the Judahite captivity, and, and the time of the rebuilding of the temple and the establishment of the 70 weeks kingdom. Cyrus, what was the first... Persian king to rule over the Persians and the Medes. The throne had formerly belonged to the Medes, under, and, and the last Mede king was named Astyages. Cyrus ruled Persia from 550 to 529 B.C. During that time, he conquered the Babylonians and, and took control of Babylonia and added that to his kingdom. His son was Cambyses, who ruled from 529 to 522 B.C., there was another king that was supposedly the brother of Cambyses, but apparently, according to the Greek records, but not necessarily the Persian inscriptions, an imposter named by the Greeks, Pseudo-Smyrtus. He had a Persian name, but Pseudo-Smyrtus is sufficient for our purposes. The Persian name, I, I, I have it in my record somewhere, but I don't have it in my mind. Pseudosmyrtus was considered to be a usurper, and he was replaced by Darius Hystaspus, or Darius the Great. Darius was succeeded by Xerxes, and Xerxes by Artaxerxes. Pseudosmyrtus ruled only for about nine months in 522-521 BC. Darius ruled for 35 years from 521 to 486 B.C., Xerxes from 486 to 465 B.C., and Artaxerxes from 465 to 445. 
the dates are important, and, and we will get back to them later. All of these Persian kings, up to Artaxerxes, and, and, and up to Xerxes, I'm sorry, were discussed at great length by the Greek historian Herodotus. So this is a very well-known period in Persian history. Shortly after the rule of, the, the rule of um, Artaxerxes, from 465 to 445, the Peloponnesian Wars began among the Greeks, and they lasted from 431 to 404. That is a, also an extremely well-recorded period of Greek history, and, and the Persians were often mentioned because the Persians were often the instigators of the Peloponnesian Wars trying to get the Athenians and the Spartans to destroy each other so that they could walk into the void. Darius Nafis, Darius the Bastard, ruled Persia from 426 and Artaxerxes II from 407 BC. The brother of Artaxerxes II, Cyrus the Younger, led a rebellion against him and lost his life in its failure. The great Greek general, Xenophon, was a part of that expedition. Xenophon also became a great writer, and, and this was the subject of Xenophon's Anabasis, which was a famous book written about those events. And again, we see a lot of interaction between Greeks and Persians, and a lot of this history was recorded. Because the Septuagint Greek was translated from the Hebrew at a time very close to, in antiquity to the actual events discussed here, especially and especially compared to the A.V. English, because the Septuagint is, I am persuaded, often more reliable than a Masoretic text, but not always. I've chosen to adhere to the Septuagint version of the Scripture for this study, although at times I may refer to or quote the King James Version. Daniel... Chapter 9, verse 1, mentions an Ahasuerus, or an Asaurus. And it shall be shown that this title, Ahasuerus, and, and I understand that some of these words are going to be hard to grasp and hard for me to pronounce, so I will have these notes on, on this podcast on Christogenia when it's, when, when it's posted tonight. Ahasuerus, it shall be shown, was merely a title applied to the emperor or to any governor or appointed ruler. It appears often in Daniel, it appears in, in, in the book of Ezra, it appears in Nehemiah. At one point, the title Ahasuerus was used of Nehemiah, and that will be discussed later. It can be shown that the scrolls of Daniel, as we know it, they're out of order. It can be established by noticing that the Chaldeans ruled Babylon in Daniel chapter 1 through 5, and the Persians ruled Babylon in Daniel chapter 6, and the Chaldeans again ruled Babylon in Daniel chapter 7, and the Persians ruled Babylon in Daniel chapter 9. There's no doubt that the, the chapters of Daniel are out of order. At the time Daniel 9 was written, the Persians are ruling Babylon, and Cyrus seems to have been the emperor. Daniel was taken captive as a young man by Nebuchadnezzar, 
he was one of the princes of, of Jerusalem who were taken back in, in that first entry of Nebuchadnezzar to Jerusalem. And, and he was probably about 16 years old, it seems, or maybe a little older, when that occurred around 604 B.C. It's unlikely that Daniel outlived Cyrus, since Cyrus was the emperor until 529 B.C. I mean, it's possible, but it's not likely that Daniel lived to be well over 100 years old and still writing. The title Darius, the word Darius is also just a title, and we see Daniel use that here. And it's from a Persian word which seems to mean possessor or supporter. The Greeks later used it as a name for their own identification of certain Persian kings. So we see that Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus is a title, and it can be applied to any governor. That's probably the word, and, and it can be demonstrated, that the Greeks pronounced as Artaxerxes. And they applied that Persian title to a particular Persian king of this period, and to another king later on, Artaxerxes too. Darius was a title. And Darius was applied by the Greeks to a particular Persian king. But just because the Greeks use those words in that manner doesn't mean that that's the way the Persians use them. In fact, we know from Persian inscriptions that these kings had Persian names, which the Greeks did not use. So we can't assume that the Hebrew writers, who were very much more intimate with the Persians and Persian culture than the Greeks were, we can't assume that they used these titles in the same way that the Greeks used them. The Greeks would take a title, apply it to a Persian ruler, and they would record him by that as if it were his name. We can't assume that Daniel used these words in the manner which the Greeks used them. And Cyrus is the emperor mentioned in Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, and also in the Septuagint in Daniel chapter 11. So Cyrus, it would be safe to say, with the age, along with the age of Daniel and the way the Greeks used the titles and the Hebrews didn't, we, we see in chapter 9 of Daniel that Daniel must also probably be referring to Cyrus even though he's using the titles Darius and Ahasuerus to refer to him at times. Ezra. Ezra 4.6 mentions an Asuerus or an Ahasuerus, which seems to be a reference to Cambyses. Again, it's a title. Cambyses is at that time the king that received complaints from the Samaritans regarding the building of Jerusalem and ordered it halted as a result. And I will discuss that again below as we proceed. Ezra chapter 4, verse 7, verse 8, verse 11, verse 23, and Ezra 6.14 all mention in the Greek what would be in the Hebrew or English, Ahasuerus, as the King James translators translated the Hebrew, 
Ezra mentioned all those passages in Ezra mentioned in Arthasasta, which is the way Ezra wrote that word Ahasuerus when he wrote in Greek or when the Greek was translated. And we see that that has to be the word that the Greeks considered to be Artaxerxes. In the King James, the corresponding passages have Artaxerxes. In the Apocryphal 1 Esdras, and let me talk about the Apocryphal book 1 Esdras. That book is probably a much better and much more reliable copy of what we have in the King James Version of the Bible as the book of Ezra. It's much more complete, and it's much more exacting historically. It seems to me that Ezra may have been a chopped-down version of the original Hebrew that gave us, ultimately, the book that we know as one Esdras in the Greek Apocrypha. The king called Arthasasta, or Artaxerxes, in these passages in Ezra, in chapters 4 and 6, cannot be the Artaxerxes who was so well known to us throughout the Greek histories, this being just a title, and whose name, given name according to Joseph, was actually Cyrus also, Josephus, and, and Josephus was sometimes seemed to be on the money concerning these passages and sometimes seemed to be confused himself. However, this king mentioned in Ezra chapters 4 and 6, called Arthasasta or Artaxerxes, he must be the earlier Cambyses because he fulfills things in history that we know that Cambyses fulfilled in other sources, and Josephus also in his Antiquities Book 11 in chapter 2, verifies this. And the reason for the confusion is that Arthasasta, or Artaxerxes, is a title and not a name. And let me say that James Strong verifies this in his concordance. If we look at the James Strong's, Strong's concordance, we look at the Hebrew lexicon entries at numbers 325, 783, and 8660, we can verify that Arthasasta, which is rendered in Greek as Artaxerxes, is a title. And that's also evident in the Septuagint text at Ezra, in the book of Ezra, in Ezra 2.63 and in Nehemiah 7.65, where we see that Zorobabel is given that title. Zorobabel is called by the title Arthasasta or Artaxerxes. And we also see that in 1 Esdras at 5.40. We also see that in Nehemiah. In Nehemiah 5.14 and in Nehemiah 10.1, Nehemiah is given the label Arthasasta or Artaxerxes. But that's the way the Hebrews recorded these things. Just because the Greeks, a hundred years later, had determined to call one particular Persian king Artaxerxes and another particular Persian king Darius, and they had titles to the Persians, but the Greek writers decided to call these titles of a certain king only. Just because the Greeks made that decision doesn't mean that we should assume that the Hebrews used the terms a hundred years prior in that same manner. 
it can be shown, and I, I am showing, that the Hebrews used those titles the way the Persians did as titles and, and titles of respect. So when we translate or when we examine the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we simply can't make the decision that when we see Darius and Artaxerxes, that those words, were the way they were translated from titles that Ezra and Nehemiah were using, we can't assume that the same figures are being meant that we see in the Greek histories, because the Greeks, a hundred years later, and, and later than that, used those words differently. The confusion caused by the English understanding of the Hebrew use of these Persian terms is not unlike that of the Greek, which is often commented upon. Herodotus states at 698 that Darius meant worker, and Xerxes meant warrior, and Artaxerxes meant great warrior. However, Herodotus' definitions were not necessarily correct here. He is trying to, to justify the use of the names Yet, and, and, and we see, we use Greek names for these kings in our own language, but that's not how Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah used them. And that's not how the Persians used them when we examine the Persian inscriptions. They are all titles which can be applied to any ruler or any man who commanded such respect. And we see right in our own texts that these titles were applied to Hebrews as well. They were applied to Zorobabel and to Nehemiah and to Ezra. So, so we see that these titles were used in, in one manner in Hebrew and in Persian, and, and the Greeks decided to take them and name them, use them for names for particular kings. We shouldn't apply, as all mainstream commentators do, that they take the, the, the Greek method, and they, which was wrong, and they apply it, they apply it to the way the Hebrews used the terms. And that's not the way that the Hebrews used the terms. With this understanding, we'll take a walk through Ezra and Nehemiah with the proper chronology. And it can be figured out. It can be sorted out. One Esdras, chapter 1, verses 57 and 58, mentioned the 70-year prophecy of Jeremiah concerning Jerusalem, which is found in Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12, and Jeremiah 36, 10, or, or Jeremiah 29, 10 in the King James, and in Ezra 1, 1. 1 Esdras chapter 2 verse 1 mentions the decree given in the first year of Cyrus. The first year of Cyrus was actually 550 B.C. But Ezra must have intended 539 B.C. because that was the first year in which Cyrus ruled over Babylon. Not the first year of his rule over Persia since the Judeans were, were in captivity and held by the Babylonians, and Judea was ruled by Babylon, it must refer to that. Note that Cyrus was the king when Daniel uttered his prophecy found in Daniel chapter 11, verse 2. And, and let me go looking for that, because that's a pretty amazing prophecy. Once we understand that Cyrus was the king, 
I understand in the, in the King James it says that Darius was the king, but Darius is a title. In the Septuagint, it says Cyrus at Daniel 11.1. 1. And Cyrus was surely the king when Daniel uttered these words, Darius being used as a title. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia. And the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength through his riches, he will stir up against all the realm of Greece. Cyrus was the king when Daniel wrote that, and the three kings were Cambyses, Pseudo, Smyrdas, and Darius. And the fourth one, who would stir up against all the realm of Greece, was Xerxes. And we see at least 75 years after Daniel wrote that, that Xerxes did indeed go to war against all of Greece. So Daniel 11 is, is a very accurate short-term prophecy at the beginning, and it turns, into a very long, it turns into a very long-term prophecy after that. One Ezra is chapter 2, verse 16. This is um, equivalent to Ezra 4-7 in the King James Version of the Bible. The Samaritans wrote to Cambyses. Cambyses was the king at this time. We have other proofs which, which, which um, verify this. The Samaritans wrote to Cambyses complaining of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. The text here helps us to establish that the original decree issued by Cyrus, who was the successor of Cambyses, included the rebuilding of the city as well as the rebuilding of the temple. Herodotus portrays Cambyses as being an exceptionally cruel man, having even had his own brother, whom the Greeks called Smyrdas, slain for fear that he would usurp the throne. Pseudo-Smyrdas is, is supposedly a magi and an imposter who claimed to be Smyrdas after Cambyses had died. And Pseudo-Smyrdas, according to the Greeks, held the throne of Persia for nine months before he was overthrown by Darius Hystaspus, Darius the Great. According to Rawlinson, who was the, the George Rawlinson, the famous translator of Herodotus around circa 1870, the inscriptions found in Persia support this. Cambyses is the first king of Daniel 11.2. His successor, Pseudo-Smyrdas, a Magian imposter, was the second king of Daniel 11.2 in that prophecy. In 1 Esdras chapter 2, verse 30, which is Ezra 4.23 in the King James, Cambyses ordered the rebuilding of Jerusalem to stop because of the complaints he received from the Samaritans. The rebuilding of the temple was prevented until the second year of Darius the Persian, which began in 520 B.C. In 1 Esdras 4.43 and 1 Esdras 5.4, in this section, the apocryphal 1 Esdras differs significantly 
from the book of Ezra, as we know it in the King James. In the book of Ezra in the King James, there's a return of the group of 42,000 with Zorobabel upon the initial proclamation of Cyrus, which would be about 539 B.C. One Esdras records that same group returning with some minor variations in a list, and they returned much later upon this proclamation of Darius, not earlier upon the proclamation of Cyrus. They returned in 520 B.C., not in 539. One Esdras, uh, I'm sorry, one Ezra's chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, indicate a return of captives from Babylon to Judea upon the proclamation of Cyrus, but gives no details, stating only, and I quote, the chief families of Judah and of the tribe of Benjamin and the Levites, and it implies a separate and much earlier return of captives of an unknown number, preceding the group which is listed as returning with Zorobabel in 520 B.C. Nehemiah 12.22 seems to support one Ezra's and the return of the 42,000 plus people in the reign of Darius and not earlier in the reign of Cyrus. Josephus's Antiquities seems to support both accounts, although Josephus certainly seems confused and, and for that, we can compare diverse passages in Antiquities, Book 11, with, with 1 Esdras, Chapter 5. 1 Esdras, Chapter 5 and 6, indicate that Zorobabel was present at the first return of captives in 539 B.C. in the year of Cyrus, and, uh, I'm sorry, almost 30 years later in the second year of Darius, as he began to finally build the temple for which we can see evidence in Zechariah, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. 1 Esther's chapter 5, verse 73, makes a statement, which is errant, but the error can be easily corrected, and it's not repeated in the corresponding verse in our King James Bible in Ezra 4.24. Here it states that the Samaritans hindered the finishing of the building all the time the King Cyrus lived, so they were hindered from building for the space of two years until the reign of Darius. That's the error. Darius here must be the Persian king that the Greeks knew as Darius and none other. And there are reasons for that. And since Cyrus was followed by Cambyses and Pseudosmyrtus and ruled for a total of 30 years before Darius, here we should expect to see a figure like 30-something years, or one close to it. In support of this event having transpired over such a long duration of time is the described search of records necessary to find the original proclamation of Cyrus concerning Jerusalem, which is related in 1 Ezra chapter 6, verse 21, and in Ezra 6.1 in our King James Version of the Bible. The error here is represented by three Greek words, where one Esdras reads, ete duoheos, which Brenton translates for the space of two years until. If the Greek version of Ezra in the Septuagint has eos deutero etus, which means until the second year, 
Now, if we only follow the Greek version of Ezra in the Septuagint in this one place, with no other change being necessary, the three words in 1 Ezra 5.73 must be an error, and the reading of Ezra 4.24 corrects it. And, and it corrects it, and it makes it correct historically. We have in 1 Ezra chapter 2, verse 30, which describes the same thing, and, and that correctly says that the building was delayed until the second year of Darius. In 1 Ezra 6.21, the second year of Darius, which would begin in 520 B.C., saw the resumption of the building of the temple. At 1 Ezra 6, mentioned first at 1 Ezra 6, verses 1 and 2. Darius is, of course, the third king of Daniel 11.2. In 1 Ezra chapter 7, verse 5, which is equivalent to Ezra 6.15 in the King James, the building of the temple was completed in the sixth year of Darius. That year would begin in 516 B.C. So we see that the building of the temple, the building of the second temple in Judea, was completed in 516 B.C. If, as many calculate, including myself, the final destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians occurred in 586 B.C., then this would mark the end of Jeremiah's prophecy of 70 years of desolation upon Jerusalem. So we see that the new temple was built in its building was completed in 516 B.C., 70 years after the destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians. By this time, however, the city itself had not been rebuilt. Although a command to rebuild the city existed and work was at one time begun, but it had stopped, as we see in many witnesses, 1 Ezra chapter 2, chapter 4, and, and Ezra in our King James Version of the Bible, 4.12, and Ezra 5, verses 3 and 4. 1 Ezra and Ezra, both of those books, whichever one we want to follow, right, are silent from the sixth year of Darius to the seventh year of Artaxerxes. And Darius ruled for a long time. It will be demonstrated that Artaxerxes, the Artaxerxes of 1 Esdras chapter 8, is the historical king that we know as Artaxerxes 1 from the Greek histories. The silence that we see represents a space of roughly 58 years. As it will also be demonstrated, it is here that events related in the book of Nehemiah actually occurred. The entire book of Nehemiah can be inserted, and this is important to understand, the entire book of Nehemiah can be inserted in between 1 Esdras chapter 7 and 1 Esdras chapter 8. Or, in our King James Bible, the entire book of Nehemiah can be inserted in between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. And only then will these books be in chronological order. 
and then they will be much better understood. I understand that all of the mainstream commentators put Nehemiah after the book of Ezra, and they understand that Nehemiah followed the book of Ezra. What they don't understand, where they fail, they all fail, is that the book of Ezra actually has two parts. The first part is what Ezra recorded as had happened long before his own governorship in Judea. And the second part, and we're going to discuss this at length here, the second part is what actually happened as Ezra was the governor of Judea. In between, Nehemiah was the governor of Judea. We'll see that. The later years of the reign of Darius were consumed with wars, wars against the Scythians in Europe, wars against the Massagete related to the Scythians, the, the Scythians in India called the Saka, and finally wars against Greece, where one of Darius's generals was defeated at the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC. All of this is recorded by Herodotus. Darius was also engaged for some time in a siege of Babylon, having had to retake the city after it revolted from his rule, which is also recorded by Herodotus. The Battle of Marathon in Greece set the stage for his successor, his son, Xerxes, whose fate was to rise up against all the kings, all the kingdom of the Greeks. As it says in Daniel 11.2, Xerxes was the fourth king of that prophecy. The famous Darius must be the king of Persia, the Arthasastha mentioned by Nehemiah. Of these later Persian kings, Cambyses reigned for only eight years, Xerxes reigned for 21 years, and Artaxerxes reigned for 20. But Darius reigned for 35 years. At Nehemiah 5.14, Nehemiah states that he was appointed as governor of Judea from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes. And he's using that as a title, Artaxerxes, as a title, not the way the Greeks used it, of the name of one particular king, Artaxerxes, who actually came after Darius. Nehemiah states he reigned from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes for a period of 12 years. But he also says that during this time, I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor. That means that he and his family, although he had the appointment of governor, he and his family had not yet had the opportunity to actually leave Babylon and go to Judea to fulfill the appointment. Nehemiah 13.6 says, and I quote, the 32nd year of Arthasasta, king of Babylon, is mentioned, where Nehemiah finally obtained leave of the king, as he says, where Nehemiah was finally permitted to actually go to Jerusalem and see after the affairs which were necessary for him to perform there. And we see that he did. Evidently, the business of war in Persia was much more pressing than the business of Jerusalem. Nehemiah being the cupbearer to Darius, a very important position, 
his presence in Babylon during this entire period, even though he was the appointed governor of Judea, his presence in Babylon during the entire period is recorded here in these verses. It's manifest in these books that Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zorobabel were all contemporaries. In all of the lists which record the return of 42,000 plus from captivity, Zorobabel and Nehemiah are mentioned together. That's at Ezra 2, it's at Nehemiah chapter 7, it's at 1 Esther chapter 5. Where Ezra appears not in his own lists, but Ezra is mentioned in Nehemiah's lists. Nehemiah and Ezra are mentioned together throughout Nehemiah chapter 8 and chapter 12, 1226, among other places where Zorobabel was said to be the Arthasasta, or the governor of Judea. And the object of the title, where it is used at Ezra 2.63 and we can compare Nehemiah 7.65 and 1 Esdras 5.40, and we see that Arthasasta is corrupted to Atharius or Tershatha in the King James Version of the Bible. And there are other corruptions of the title. They spelled it different seemingly every time they, they wrote it, but, but um, it's all the same title, and the Greeks used it later to mean one particular king, where here we see it's used of Zorobabel while he's the governor, it's used of Nehemiah while he's the governor, it's used of Ezra while he's the governor. They're all called it at one time or another. That Nehemiah followed Zorobabel in the office of governor is inferred at Nehemiah 12.47. In Nehemiah 5.14 and 10.1, Nehemiah is clearly called the Arthasasta, the governor of Judea. Nehemiah recollects some of the events which were also later recorded in chapters 1 through 8 of 1 Esdras. But Nehemiah's book mentions none of the events of chapter 9 of 1 Esdras, which is chapters 8 through 10 of what we know as Ezra in the King James Version of the Bible. That's because those events have not yet transpired. And that helps to prove my, my, my contention that the book of Nehemiah should follow chapter 7 of Ezra. And then those two books would be in the correct chronological order. Chapters 8 through 10 of Ezra should be placed at the end of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah and Ezra both talk about the same events that happened in the early return, but only Ezra talks about the later events which happened after Nehemiah's turn as governor, when Ezra had his own turn as governor. Nehemiah was concerned with the rebuilding of the city and the walls of Jerusalem, a good part of which was certainly accomplished during the 12 years of his governorship, even though he was an absentee governor. However, the building of the city was by no means complete. The 20th year of Darius, 14 years after Zorobabel completed the temple, began in 502 B.C. That's when Nehemiah's governorship began. And the 32nd year, 
after which Nehemiah left the governorship of Jerusalem, began in 490 B.C. The apocryphal book Ecclesiasticus, which is also called Sophia Sirach, 49, chapter 49, verse 13, credits Nehemiah with building the wall of Jerusalem, which we also see in Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 27. But the buildings expected to inhabit the city were not necessarily complete, and we see that in Nehemiah's own book in chapters 7 and in 11. Nehemiah 7, 4 says, Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein, and the houses were not built. Nehemiah chapter 7 recollects the list of Israelites who returned to Jerusalem, as we've discussed above, in the 20th year of Darius, I'm sorry, in the second year of Darius, which is 520 B.C. Nehemiah chapter 8 shows us that Nehemiah and Ezra, again, are contemporaries, and they're mentioned together throughout this chapter. Ezra here is called the scribe or the priest, or even by both titles, as we see in Nehemiah 8.9. Nehemiah chapter 11 lists the families dwelling in Jerusalem, and specifically the priests and Levites who were priests in the reign of Darius the Persian, which is a for, firm witness of the chronology for the service of Nehemiah, which I am purporting here. When Ezra returned to Jerusalem for the second time after the time of Nehemiah, he brought with him many other priests and Levites from those among the captivity. Of course, Nehemiah didn't record it because it hadn't happened yet. Because the later half of Ezra's writing follows Nehemiah. And after their arrival, Ezra found that many of those priests and Levites, which had long been in Jerusalem, those of Nehemiah chapter 11, had taken strange wives, and he listed these in 1 Ezra chapter 9, or Ezra chapter 10. Nehemiah's mission ended before 49 B.C. Xerxes ascended to the Persian throne in 486 B.C. The entire first half of Xerxes' reign was consumed by the war against Greece which he personally attended to. Xerxes actually left his throne and went to Greece with his army. All of the sources, all of the resources of the empire were busy about this war. Many of the children of Israel and Judah actually took part in this war on both sides. Not only the Danans and the Dorians in Greece, and, and the other Israelite tribes on the side of the Greeks. But the Scythians, the Sake, the Phoenicians of Tyre, and the Palestinian Syrians, among others listed by Herodotus, were on the Persian side. The name Palestinian Syrians is what Herodotus called the Judeans. And that can be proven in the text of Herodotus, where three times, at least, he mentions the Palestinian Syrians in contexts that we see in the Bible. For instance, talking about a war between, I, I think it was Joash and the Pharaoh of Egypt, Herodotus calls them the Palestinian Syrians who are fighting Egypt. 
Xerxes led the Persian army to destroy Athens and Salamis. The same naval battle in which the Greeks destroyed the entire Persian fleet was witnessed by Xerxes from the Grecian shores in 480 B.C. This was all prophesied by Daniel in the opening verses of his 11th chapter. After Salamis, Xerxes retreated. But he left a good part of his army behind with the general to fight the Greeks on land. The Greeks defeated this army at Potahia and at Mycalae. Both battles occurred in 479 B.C. And that effectively ended any hopes of the Persians to conquer the West. It is likely that Xerxes' long journey back to Susa kept him occupied until 478 or maybe even 477 B.C. It is absolutely unlikely that Xerxes is the Artaxerxes of Ezra 1.8, or the Arthasasa of the book of Ezra chapter 7. That's where Ezra is given his commission to return back to Jerusalem again. That's when he's made the governor. It's unlikely that Xerxes, it has to be Artaxerxes, because Xerxes began the seventh year of his reign, which started around 480 B.C., sitting on the shores of Attica, watching his greatest pride, which was his relatively new and rather large navy, sink to the bottom of the sea. Surely the good king of 1 Esdras chapter 8, or Ezra chapter 7, is the historical Artaxerxes, who ascended the Persian throne in 465 B.C. Before proceeding, it must be noted that Josephus made the fatal error of accepting the book of Esther, the story, as a historical fact. The Pharisees all accepted it. He dated the Esther affair to the reign of Artaxerxes, Xerxes's successor, Antiquities, Book 11, Chapter 6. The reasons for rejecting Esther as a fable are many. They're countless. But it is outside the purpose of this paper, of, the, of this podcast, of this program, to list them. Josephus' acceptance of Esther caused him to artificially extend the length of Xerxes' reign far beyond what it actually was, attributing to Xerxes many events which are rightfully attributed to Artaxerxes, his successor, or even to Darius, his predecessor. And I'll give three examples of Josephus' confusion. At Antiquities, Book 11, Chapter 5, 11-135, here Josephus states that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Xerxes, but it was demonstrated that Nehemiah was in the employ of Darius, and, and the chronology of Nehemiah and his own statements prove that beyond doubt. Josephus in Antiquities, Book 11, at 11-168, says that Nehemiah came to Jerusalem in the 20 and 5th year of the reign of Xerxes. And that's important to note. Josephus at, at Antiquities 11.179 states, and I quote, And this trouble he underwent for two years and four months, for in so long a time was the wall built with the, in the 28th year of the reign of Xerxes in the ninth month. Now, it's difficult to say how Josephus arrived at these three conclusions or from where he obtained his data, for these statements cannot be corroborated by or reconciled with our scriptures or our histories. But one aspect of these statements does stand out. For the 28th year of Xerxes, when Josephus said that the wall was built, 
Xerxes having reigned only 21 years would actually be the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the very year which Ezra began to prepare for his second return to Jerusalem. Now, let me say that um, let me say that a lot of people, a lot of commentators, try to say that the events in Esther happened in the reign of Xerxes. And if the events in Esther happened in the reign of Xerxes, well, that must be that can't be true, and that's because in the reign of Xerxes. When the events of Esther allegedly happened, Xerxes was in Greece fighting the Greeks. Now, a lot of commentators say that the events of Esther happened in the reign of Artaxerxes. And if we believe that the events of, in Esther happened in the reign of Artaxerxes, and, and the events in Esther say they happened in the third year of the reign in which that they began in the third year of the reign of the king in which they happened, Who's called Artaxerxes? Who is called Artaxerxes? I'm sorry. Why didn't Ezra write about them? It's such an important and incredibly important event as the killing of all of the people of Judah occurred in the reign of Artaxerxes in his third year or in his fourth year. Why didn't Ezra, who wrote and received the commission from Artaxerxes in his seventh year, why didn't he write about Esther. The truth is that the book of Esther is garbage. The book of Esther never happened. It's a historical romance written by a Jew, probably in the 2nd or 3rd century B.C., and the people of Judea used it as a political motivator, and, and the Pharisees ended up accepting it and putting it into Bible. One Esdras, chapter 8, which is equivalent to Ezra 7-1 in the King James Bible. Ezra received the commission from Artaxerxes in his seventh year to return to Jerusalem with a large contingent of priests, Levites, and others of the captivity. Ezra is given much authority that they may look into the affairs of Judea and Jerusalem, it says in 1 Esdras 8-12. And thou, Esdras, according to the wisdom of God, ordain judges and justices that they may judge in all Syria and Phoenicia, it says in 1 Esdras 8.23. If Ezra was not actually appointed the governor, and there's a vague statement at 1 Esdras 9.49, and, and by that we see just how humble a man Ezra was, if he was not actually appointed the governor, as Zorobabel and Nehemiah were before him, he certainly was given authority which exceeded even theirs. And that's fully evident from the text at Ezra in the Bible, in the King James, chapter 7, verses 25 through 28. This return took Ezra over seven months to prepare for and to complete. Surely it extended, or at least it approached, the eighth year of the reign of Artaxerxes, which began in 457 B.C. Daniel 9.25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, 
shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. From 457 B.C., 69 weeks, or 483 years, a day being a year in prophecy, 69 times 7 is 483. From 457 B.C., 69 weeks, or 483 years later, we arrive at 26 A.D. According to the, the Apostle Luke, by his dating, and I'll, ver I'll verify this later, the year that Joshua Christ stood in the River Jordan to be baptized by John was certainly, and, and which is certainly accurate in the account of Luke, was 28 A.D. Thus the beginning of Joshua's three-and-one-half-year ministry in the flesh, the first half of Daniel's 70th week, Daniel 9.27. I want to render a word here which the King James renders as going forth, and, and we have to examine that. In Hebrew, it's Strong's number 4161, Mautza, or Matzah. It means a going forth, an act, an egress, or the place, an exit, and therefore a source or a product that's important. Specifically, dawn, the rising of the sun, exportation, utterance, it has a lot of allegorical uses. For our purposes, matzah is the final result of the commandment, where it is defined as a going forth, an egress, an exit, and hence a source or a product. The Septuagint Greek is Exodus. That's what it says. It's the same word of the famous book, Strong's number 1841. Liddell and Scott define Exodus in this manner, a going out, a marching out, a military expedition, a solemn procession, a way out, an outlet, an end or a close, the end or an issue of an argument. So the meaning of the Exodus does not conflict at all with the interpretation of the Hebrew if we interpret the Hebrew to mean the source or the product, the product of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's how I would interpret the word in Daniel chapter 9. With Ezra's return, circa 457 B.C., with his return to Jerusalem at that time, the end, or better, the product of the command to build and restore the city of Jerusalem may be perceived as having been completed at a time shortly after 457 B.C. Yet with all the planning aside, it's the time to actually get the building underway, and that must be counted because we're talking about the product, the end of the command, the completion of the command to restore and rebuild the city. With, with all that, if we can just add two years that it took Ezra to finish the building to complete the command, as the Hebrew allows us to perceive the word and its use, then we can easily arrive at 455 B.C. 
455 B.C. would be 480 years, three years, exactly 69 weeks prior to the baptism of Joshua Christ in 28 A.D. That's how close we can get to understanding the fulfillment of Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. With the chronology presented here, not only is history, the history of Jerusalem, properly aligned with the utterance of the prophets, Jeremiah and Daniel, but scripture is also fully reconciled with the secular history of Persia, which has come down to us through the Greeks and through the inscriptions. No longer do we have the difficulty which the many errant mainstream commentators leave themselves with when they attempt to explain these books. No generally accepted dates from secular history have to be distorted to meet the chronological requirements of the prophecies and the books discussed here, and no accusations must be leveled at Scripture. All of the problems discussed have easily been resolved once we understand that Artaxerxes, Artaxasta, Darius, they're only originally used as titles. They weren't used as names of particular kings until the Greeks started to do that in four, circa, with Herodotus, circa 450 B.C., and the whole Western world followed suit. But that's not how the Persians used them. That's not how the Persians used the word, and that's not how Ezra and Nehemiah used the words. Surely there are some minor items which I've left unmentioned in these few short pages, but all of the important statements in the books discussed as pertaining to chronology presented here have been addressed, and I must conclude that the word of God is sure than the understanding of man. And now I will present the resulting chronology from all of this study and observation. In 550 B.C., Cyrus, the king of Persia, became the king of Persia. He conquered Babylon in 539 B.C., and shortly thereafter, the first return of captives to Judea was allowed in his reign. In 529 B.C., Cambyses became the king of Persia. Sometime before 522, he ordered the reconstruction of Jerusalem to stop. In 522 B.C., Pseudo-Smyrtus the Magi usurped the Persian throne. In 521 B.C., Darius Hystaspus became the Persian emperor. In 520 B.C., the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem commenced. In 516, the temple was completed, which was the sixth year of the king we know as Darius. Jeremiah's 70 years of desolation ended during this year. In 502 B.C., Nehemiah was commissioned by Darius. The rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem began during this period, but it was never finished. In 490 B.C., Nehemiah's commission in Jerusalem ended. The city's walls were completed and dedicated. The building construction within the city was underway, but was by no means complete. At this very year, the Persians were defeated by the Greeks in the Battle of Marathon. In 486 B.C., 
Xerxes became the king, and preparations began for the invasion of Greece. In 480 BC, Xerxes stood on the shores of Attica and watched his fleet lose to the Greeks at Salamis, and he began his retreat home. In 479 BC, partial Persian armies were defeated simultaneously by the Greek armies at Plataea and Mycenae. In 465 B.C., Artaxerxes became the king. In 458 B.C., the seventh year of Artaxerxes, Ezra was commissioned for his final return to Jerusalem. In 455 B.C., by this time, the city is rebuilt. Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy began around this time. For the purpose of this illustration, a 455 B.C. completion of the final building of the city by Ezra is required for a 32 A.D. crucifixion, and the building by Ezra certainly may not have finished until 455 B.C., as we have seen. According to Luke, in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, and Luke's dating of the beginning of the ministry of Christ, the crucifixion had to occur in 32 A.D., Luke says that Christ's ministry began in 28 A.D., in the fall, because that was the 14th year of Tiberius. All of these things are therefore synchronized. Again, in Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 through 27, and I will read, I'm sorry, Luke 3, 1 says the 15th year of Tiberius, which would be 28 A.D. Tiberius's reign started in 14 A.D., the years being counted inclusively the fall, Tiberius having taken the throne in August of 14 A.D., his 14th year would have been completed in August of 28 A.D., which marks the beginning of his 15th year. Christ was baptized in the fall of 28 AD, the beginning of the 15th year of Tiberius, as Luke 3.1 states. Again, Daniel 9.25-27. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, the going forth we have seen from the Hebrew means the product of the commandment, not its beginning. It began, the first issue, the first order was issued all the way back in the time of Cyrus. And there were many interruptions of that order. There were interruptions when Cambyses ordered it stopped, and Darius reissued the orders, and there were interruptions again with the, the, the wars of the Persians, and especially the long, protracted war of the Persians against the Greeks. Then Ezra, one final time, received a new commandment from Artaxerxes in the seventh year so that he could finally finish the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And we see that that very well could have been completed finally in 455 A.D. And that's when Daniel's 70 weeks had to begin. 
Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Now, why this is split? Why this 69-week period is split into two sections, 7 and 62, is beyond me. I haven't studied it well enough to understand. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. We've seen that these things were built and the building would proceed and it stopped and, and then it was interrupted by the war. So it was certainly troublous times. But the city did eventually get built. And after three score and two weeks, meaning after the seven and then the three score and two, or after the 483 years, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week, in the midst of that one week, the 70th week of Daniel, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined, shall be poured upon the desolate. The people of the prince that shall come and destroy the city, they are the Romans, who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled exactly as well as we can understand it from history. It's extremely demonstrable that it was fulfilled to the letter. The Jews constantly claim that Daniel was written at a much later period than what Daniel himself asserts in an attempt to diminish the importance and the wonder of his prophecies. However, the prophet Daniel is vindicated in many ways, and I will, I will explain one of those ways. For instance, all of the Greek legends and histories tell us that, that they only tell us that Semiramis, in, in, in myths which are actually based upon the life of an 8th century B.C. Assyrian queen, the Greek myths all say that Semiramis had built the city of Babylon. However, and this is something that the Greeks, after the beginning of the Persian period, certainly did not know, archaeologists have uncovered many inscriptions, and even the bricks of the walls themselves, which attest that the Book of Nezar had rebuilt the city of Babylon. The Book of Nezar, we know from archaeologists, had built or rebuilt the city of Babylon. We know that the city of Babylon existed for several thousand years before that, but it is very clear from many inscriptions found in the city that the Book of Nezar rebuilt the city. Daniel chapter 4. Verse 30, affirms that the prophet had this knowledge, which has been discovered to us only through archaeology. The Greeks were ignorant of it. Daniel wrote at Daniel 4.30 that the king spoke and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Therefore, Daniel must have written... When Daniel tells us that he wrote, 
he must have written in the days of the Chaldean kings of Babylon. And that's because the Greeks were absolutely ignorant of the fact that Nebuchadnezzar rebuilt the city. They, in all their histories, attributed it to Semiramis. The Jews claim that Daniel was written in the first century B.C., or sometimes the Jews claim that Daniel was written in the second century B.C. If that were the case, Daniel could not have known that Nebuchadnezzar had built Babylon. Because the Greeks were ignorant of it, or at least seemingly. That's only one proof. There are many proofs of things that Daniel knew about Babylon that the Greeks never knew about Babylon, which means with all certainty that Daniel wrote when he said he wrote. And the archaeologists have proven him out. That's Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. That is the chronology of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. I know that some parts of it were probably boring because we can't check all the passages, but but the notes will be online and the passages will be available if anybody wants to prove them out later. Someday I'll make it into a formal into a formal paper. Now with that we can proceed with Mark chapter thirteen. During the first half of this podcast, we discussed the chronology of Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy found in Daniel chapter 9, with, and with great detail from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and from the history of Persia. Now we can proceed with Mark chapter 13, repeating a few of the things that we discussed last week when we began this chapter. And hopefully, after seeing the prophecy of Daniel, the marvel of these prophecies will be that much, that much more meaningful to us. Mark 13, verse 1. And upon his going out from the temple, one of his students says to him, Teacher, behold, what quality stones and what quality buildings. And Yahshua said to him, You see these great buildings? By no means should it be left here a stone upon a stone which would not be thrown down. Here Christ forecasts the destruction of Jerusalem which was to come nearly 40 years later. At the end of Matthew chapter 23, which Mark did not record, Christ exclaimed to the Judeans, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Daniel 9.27 once again says of the ministry of Christ, that he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week shall he cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. So we see the similarity of the language harkens right back to Daniel 9.27. Mark 13.3. And upon his being seated in the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, they questioned him by themselves, Peter and Jacob and John and Andrew. Tell us, what shall these things be, and what is the sign when all these things would be about to be accomplished? We have seen from Matthew that the apostles asked Christ three separate questions. Tell us, when shall these things be, in reference to his statements concerning the destruction of Jerusalem? What is the sign of your coming, in reference to the ultimate return of the Christ, and of the consummation of the age, 
in reference to Christ's many statements, which mention the end of the age, or world, as the King James Version has it. The apostles could not have known that the answers to these three questions would describe separate events which would occur many years apart from each other. They imagine the end of Jerusalem to herald the end of the age and the immediate return of Christ. Many Christian preterists hold that same errant conclusion today. Christ did not clarify the matter for us, giving one long discourse and a single answer to all three questions. It is a challenge for us to sort it out, and it must be said that none of us are going to be able to do so with perfect clarity. Then Yahshua began to speak to them. Verse 5. Watch that not anyone would deceive you. Many shall come in my name, saying that I am he, and they shall deceive many. Let me read Matthew 24, 4. And replying, Yahshua said to them, Watch lest anyone should deceive you, for many shall come by my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they shall deceive many. Here Yahshua tells us specifically that many people would come claiming to be him. Well, that's one of the proofs that Christianity is true, because that has not happened until this present era. The foresight of Christ is evident throughout the entire gospel. In this present era, we have seen that it has indeed happened frequently. Mark thirteen seven. But when you should hear of wars and reports of wars, do not be troubled. It needs to happen. But not yet is the end, for nation shall arise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be earthquakes in various places, there shall be famines. These things are the beginning of travails. Matthew 24, verses 6 to 8 read nearly identically to this, but Luke 21, verses 9 and 11 read thus, But when you should hear of wars and disturbances, you should not be scared. For it is necessary that these things come first, but not immediately is the end. Then he said to them, Nation shall arise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be both great earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places. There shall be both terrors and great signs from heaven. As it was explained here at length last week when I covered the first half of this very chapter, this prophecy was certainly not fulfilled before 70 A.D., However, the history of the past 200 years, and especially from the start of the 20th century, perfectly fulfills this description. We cannot say that it's over. For most of the world's most for the world's most destructive war to date, the Second World War is just behind us, on such a timescale, anyway. However, as Christ says, not yet is the end. And these are the beginning of travails. Christians must find refuge in the fact that the word of God is certain, and indeed, we shall prevail. Mark 13, verse 9. But you watch out for yourselves. They shall hand you over to the councils, and you shall be beaten in the assembly halls. And you shall be made to stand before governors and kings because of me for a testimony to them. And in all the nations, it is necessary first for the good message to be proclaimed. 
And when they shall bring you, handing you over, do not practice beforehand what you should say, but that which you should be given to you at that hour, that you shall say. For it is not you who are speaking, but it is the Holy Spirit. And brother shall hand over brother unto death, and father child, and children shall rise up against parents and shall slay them. And you shall be hated by all on account of my name. But he abiding to the end, he shall be saved. Today, the only people in the world who can honestly claim to be hated by all are true white Christians. It is doubtless that the persecutions of of Christians all throughout history and the later Jesuit-instigated persecutions of the Reformers by the Catholic Church were all instigated by the Jews. The persecutions of Christians throughout all of the European wars and revolutions from the French Revolutions through the Bolshevik Revolution and to the Spanish Civil War were all conducted by the Jews. At this very time, Jews today are trying to pass laws in all white nations that would lead to the further persecution of Christians. We had discussed those first 13 verses last week at much greater length. Now we will proceed with Mark chapter 13, verse 14. Now when you should see the abomination of desolation, standing where it is not proper, he reading must understand, then those in Judea must flee into the mountains, and he upon the housetop must not go down or enter in to take anything from his house. And he who is in the field must not turn back to the things behind to take his garment. But woe to those being pregnant and with infant in those days. As an aside, I'll draw a little picture of the passage where Christ says that he upon the housetop must not go down into the house to take anything from his house. In ancient cities, the houses were in rows, and you could run right down the length of all the houses to the end of the row and get downstairs and outside to the gate. Now, you could go down through your house to the city street and escape the city the same way, but it was slower, and it would slow you down wanting to take your property from your house. Christ is telling you to get out of Babylon quickly. The version in Matthew 24 is very much like this one. However, the verses, there, verses 15 and 16 say in part, when you should see the abomination of desolation which was spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, he reading must understand, then those who are in Judea must flee into the mountains. Most of the comments below are therefore adapted from my earlier commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. Luke's version of these words is recorded quite differently from both Matthew and Mark. It is evident that Luke chose to record a part of Yahshua's certainly much longer discourse which concerned the destruction of Jerusalem and which was fulfilled in history with great exactitude. As Luke wrote it in 65 to 70 A.D., God willing, we will hope to fully elucidate that when we give the commentary for the Gospel of Luke sometime early next year. What was recorded by Matthew and Mark was indeed quite different and could not have been fulfilled in 70 A.D. 
Well, the words of Luke 21, verses 20 through 25, fit the circumstances of history and fall of Jerusalem in the first century perfectly. That does not mean that they are not both applicable and foreboding as to what is happening to the people of God, to true Israel, today. The references to Jerusalem in prophecy often mean not the old city, but the seat of government wherever Israel happens to be. Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 and Revelation chapter 20 both draw a clear picture that shows that Israel, the people, the true people, not the Jews, would again be surrounded by her enemies in the last days. Certainly we are. Neither Ezekiel nor the Revelation are talking about the counterfeit Jewish state in Palestine. First, we must examine what is the abomination of desolation, and then we shall further discuss Jerusalem surrounded by armies. The abomination of desolation spoken of in the records of Matthew and Mark is quite different than the prophecy desolation of Jerusalem in Daniel chapter 9, which was referred to by Luke's record. And the abomination of desolation is mentioned in both chapters 11 and 12 of Daniel's prophecy. I am not going to attempt to interpret all of Daniel chapter 11 here, except to say that, unlike most commentators, I believe that Daniel chapter 11 is a prophecy of the struggle between two earlier little horns mentioned by Daniel. The king of the north, I am persuaded, refers to the imperial papacy, which is the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. And the king of the south is Mohammedanism, Islam. And that is the little horn of Daniel chapter 8. While the Greek of the New Testament merely says abomination of desolation, as does the Greek of most Septuagint manuscripts, the Theodosian version of the Old Testament Greek has a phrase at Daniel 11.31 where it agrees with the other Septuagint manuscripts at 12.11. At 11.31, the phrase may be rendered, the abomination which makes desolate. That is how the Hebrew Masoretic text reads, and that's how it's translated in the King James Version and in most other editions in both places. There are some editions which translate the Hebrew also as the abomination of desolation, but most editions translate it the abomination which makes desolate. And the Theodosian Septuagint agrees. Daniel 11.31 says this in the King James Version, an arm shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. No matter what one thinks about this prophecy, it is still in Christ's future, as we see in here in Mark 13, verse 14, and in Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, it cannot refer to the Seleucid kings of the 2nd century B.C., as so many commentators insist that it does. They're all wrong on Daniel 11, just like they're all wrong on the chronology of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
Also, the prophecy in Daniel chapter 11 cannot properly be made to fit the period from the Seleucids to Nero, and therefore the abomination that makes desolate is not the Roman defilement of the temple in the days of Nero, as many other commentators have also attempted to claim. However, reading Daniel chapter 12, where it is also mentions this abomination that makes desolate, may lend us further insight into what it could be referencing. So we will read Daniel chapter 12. And at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even unto that time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. I believe that this time began with the Second World War, which fits this very description as Adolf Hitler fits the description of Michael. Adolf Hitler tried to do the work of Christ by separating the wheat from the tares. All of two seed-blind Christian identities should understand these things. Michael is a Hebrew phrase, a word which basically means, who is like God? It's actually a phrase word. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased." The phrase, seal the book, refers to the very scroll which began with Daniel 11.1 and continues through Daniel chapter 12, which is why most of Daniel chapter 11 is still a mystery defying interpretation, at least to me, and I admit that. Daniel 12, verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood two others, one on this side and one on that side of the bank of the river. And one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, and when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swore by him that lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half, when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. And therefore, we see that these times are connected to the seven times of Israel's punishment. And I heard, but I understood not. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but wickedly, the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and this seems to me to indicate only a forced change of religion told in terms that Daniel would understand, we see the word sacrifice was added to the text. The word translated daily is also rendered as continual throughout the Old Testament, accompanied by a word that means burnt offering. But here in Daniel 12, and in Daniel chapters 8 and 11, the word stands alone. The translators only assume that it is used here in connection with an actual sacrifice, but this is not necessarily so.
And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Let me say that there were 1,291 years from Muhammad's 622 A.D. flight from Mecca to the founding of the Federal Reserve in 1913. The Federal Reserve is surely an abomination which makes the whore of, resolution, of, of the revelation desolate. Daniel 12.12, 12, blessed is he that waits and comes to the 1,305 and 30 days. And let me say that there were 1,335 years from 613 to 1948 A.D. when the artificial imposter Israeli state was officially sanctioned. This is indeed the abomination of desolation. In this period between 1913 and 1948, over 100 million Christians were slain in two world wars, and another 20 or 30 million were killed by the Bolshevik Jews. Daniel 12:13. But go thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. The Dome of the Rock was constructed from 688 to 691 A.D., just about 1290 years after Nebuchadnezzar's first invasion of Jerusalem. This is certainly a pagan idol, which is an abomination amongst the desolation of the once holy city. There were just about 1,290 years from 622 A.D., the year of Muhammad's famous flight from Mecca, and the year in which the Muslim calendar begins, to 1913 A.D. Islam is surely an abomination which makes desolate, and it caused much desolation in Christendom, as it still does. Adam Clark, who wrote his commentary up until about 1831, also wants to start counting the times of Daniel to the rise of Muhammadism, from the rise of Muhammadism, circa 612 A.D., from which 1335 comes to 1947 A.D. There are 1,335 years from 613 to 1948 A.D. when the imposter artificial Israeli state was officially sanctioned. This is indeed the abomination of desolation. Malachi chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says of Edom, that, whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down, and they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom Yahweh has indignation forever. And your eye shall see, and you shall say, Yahweh will be magnified from the border of Israel. The false Israeli state in Palestine is certainly the abomination of desolation. I understand that this method is probably not perfect, since we have one year off between 612 and 613 to fulfill the two sets of years that we were given, 1290 to 1913, 1335 to 1948. But they are quite profound, and I know of no better events to look at in history for the fulfillment of these things. One may not understand the connection between Mohammedism and Judaism, but Mohammedanism is Jewish. There is evidence that Muhammad himself was a Jew, that he had Jews in his company who actually wrote his so-called holy book, which is itself a blasphemy of the real word of God, and therefore Mohammedanism is a Jewish invention. Mohammedanism 
has succeeded in enlisting the mixed races of the world against Christianity, and the Jew has profited greatly by it. Note that there was no effort on the part of Christians during those many centuries to convert the non-whites to Christ. The ancient white world in the Middle East and in, and in the Near East and in North Africa, along with many of the Mediterranean islands and parts of southern Europe, had been heavily miscegenated on account of Mohammedanism. Today, the Jews still use Mohammedanism as a weapon against the West to maintain their advantage over Christendom. Revelation chapter 17, verses 16 to 17. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. When I gave my commentary on the Revelation, I, started, I stated that the ten horns represent the governments and powers which have ruled over the woman. The woman is true Israel. These numbers given to us by God through Daniel, I am persuaded, help us to identify those powers which cause her desolation. While the powers behind world Jewry are behind both Judaism and Islam, and therefore they are the abomination which maketh desolate, meaning the desolation of God's people, they are also the abomination of desolation. They are acting as if they are God's people. They are sitting in the old Jerusalem, posing as if they rightfully inhabit the holy city. But the Jerusalem of God is his people come down from heaven. And Jeremiah, in chapter 19, said of the old Jerusalem that it was to be broken forever, as one breaks a potter's vessel that cannot be made whole again. In verse 8 it says, And I will make the city desolate and a hissing. Everyone that passes thereby shall be astonished and hiss because of all the plagues thereof. What could be a greater abomination than the blood of Esau and Canaan sitting in that old Jerusalem claiming to be the people of God? Yet in Malachi chapter 1, as we have already seen cited above, Yahweh has promised to destroy them and promised a promise repeated in other prophecies, such as Obadiah 18, where it states, And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau shall be for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken it. Here it is meet to read from Jeremiah chapter 30 keeping in mind the prophecy which we have already seen in Daniel chapter 12 about the time of trouble. In Daniel 12, we see it said that there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. In Matthew 15:21, we read, for at that time there should be great tribulation such as not happened from the beginning of society until now, nor by any means should happen. We see the words repeated here in Mark. So we see that this is connected with the abomination of desolation, which has been associated here with both the Federal Reserve and the founding of the imposter Israeli state. 
These things are indeed connected because it was the Federal Reserve which assured the power of world jewelry over the Christian people of God in America, their most powerful nation, which made possible the defeat of both Kaiser Wilhelm and Adolf Hitler, which was the assurance of Jewish power over white Christian Europe, and which made possible the foundation of the imposter Israeli state, because the founding of the Federal Reserve also made possible the fulfillment of the Balfour Declaration with America's entry into World War I. All these things are connected. We have already noted that from the founding of the Federal Reserve unto the establishment of the Israeli state, at least 120 million white Christians were killed by the Jews. Jeremiah chapters 30 and 31 are a study by themselves. Together they promise a full return of the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity, culminating with the fulfillment of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31:31. The first advent of Christ made possible the new covenant, but it is not yet fulfilled, and it will not be until the restoration of true Israel at his second advent and the removal of all of his enemies, which is the promise of Christianity. Yet before this happens, a great time of trouble is described, as we see in Jeremiah 30 at verse 1, the word came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, saying, Thus speaketh Yahweh, the God of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words which I have spoken unto thee in a book. For, lo, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith Yahweh, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. And these are the words that Yahweh spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith Yahweh, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask you now, and see whether a man does travail with child. Therefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith Yahweh of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck, and I will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. But they shall serve Yahweh their God and David their king, who is Christ prophesied, whom I will raise up unto them. Therefore fear them not, O my servant Jacob, saith Yahweh, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. From these chapters, it is also evident that this time of trouble includes the events prophesied in Jeremiah 31, verses 27 through 30, the time we are in right now, where it says, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, saith Yahweh. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But every one shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eats the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. Here it may be neat to recall Mark 13, verses 7 and 8, where it says, 
But when you should hear of wars and reports of wars, do not be troubled. It needs to happen, but not yet is the end. For nation shall arise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be earthquakes in various places. There shall be famines. These things are the beginning of travails. We can correlate this directly to Jacob's time of, to Jeremiah's time of Jacob's trouble, which he talks about in Jeremiah chapter 30, and to Daniel's description of Michael standing up for his people. We have seen the most horrendous wars in world history in the First and Second World Wars. We have seen the murders of at least 120 million Christians in this same period at the hands of the Jews who instigated those wars. And these things are the beginning of travails. And as Christ says, for it needs to happen, but not yet is the end. That's the time we're in right now. With all of this in mind, we shall proceed with Mark. Verse 18 of chapter 13. And you must pray that it would not be winter, for there shall be tribulation in those days of a sort that has not happened such as this from the beginning of the creation which Yahweh has created until now and shall not happen. And unless Yahweh has shortened the days, not any flesh would be saved. But on account of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened the days. It's past tense, but its past tense reflects the certainty of the prophecy. Do not be deceived by the universalists. Do not be deceived by the denizens of Christian identity clowndom. Whenever it refers to all flesh in the Bible, it refers to those with the spirit of Yahweh who reside in Adamic bodies. The vessels of Yahweh referred to in Isaiah 50-11. Referring to Israel, at Joel 2.28, Yahweh says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my soul upon all flesh. That means upon all Adamic flesh. Yahweh, I'm sorry, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your sons and your daughters, meaning Israelite sons and Israelite daughters, not the children of beasts. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. If Yahweh does not hasten his return, our race shall indeed vanish from the earth. Mark 13:21 And at that time if one should say to you look here is the Christ and look there do not believe it for there shall arise false christs and false prophets and they shall give signs and wonders for which to lead astray if possible the elect But you watch I have told you all these things beforehand There are many men in our society in our company today who want to play the part of savior who feel that they can deliver us from our enemies. They are all deceivers. And here we are warned not to be fooled by them. If they would be Christians, they would believe these words of Christ. If they are not Christians, we should have nothing to do with the them in the first place since they are deniers of Christ. Verse 24. But in those days, with that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall, be falling from out of heaven, and the powers which are in the heaven shall be shaken. 
And then they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with much power and effulgence. And he shall send the messengers, and they shall gather his elect out of the four winds, and from the end of the earth unto the end of the heavens. It can be demonstrated in the prophets and in the revelation that the sun and the moon represent the powers of godly and human government here on earth. We see the same language used in Isaiah chapter 13, which prophesied the fall of ancient Babylon. And I will quote verses 10 and 13, where it says, For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened and is going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of Yahweh of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. We also see in Revelation 6.12, where the prophecy concerns the fall of the Roman Empire, and I quote from the King James Version, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. So the earthquakes, the shaking of the towers of heaven, and the failure of the sun and the moon are not to be taken literally, but rather they describe the collapse of empirical government and the basic structure of society which it rests upon. When Babylon falls, Yahweh shall ensure the gathering of his people. Now, I must address this, that there are those who want to take the statement that, that the powers of the heavens shall be shaken and insist that it describes a forthcoming nuclear event. I think Bertrand Compare is where I first read this interpretation. Part of the reasoning is that the Greek word for heaven is uranos, and that is the word from which we get the word uranium, the metal used in the manufacture of nuclear weapons. But we can see from Isaiah chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 6 that such an interpretation is certainly not necessary because there were no nuclear weapons when the powers of the heavens were shaken at the fall of Babylon and at the fall of Rome. The term, the powers of the heavens, can also represent God's people here on earth, and we certainly are being shaken today. On the other side of the coin, and I have to mention this because I'm fair, or I try to be, there is a very interesting passage in Isaiah chapter 25, which certainly seems to support Bertrand Compare's thesis. I will cite it here. First, Isaiah chapter 24 is another prophecy concerning judgment upon the nations of the world. Isaiah chapter 25 is a song celebrate of praise celebrating that judgment. Here is Isaiah 25, verses 4 through 6. For thou, meaning Yahweh, has been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. Thou shalt bring down the noise of the strangers as the heat in a dry place, even the heat with the shadow of a cloud. The branch of the terrible one shall be brought low, and in this mountain shall the Lord, shall Yahweh of hosts, make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines and lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines under lees well refined. This heat blast and the heat with the shadow of a cloud are certainly foreboding. They also call to mind 
things mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and by Peter in his second epistle. However, that requires a separate study. Here I will read the same prophecy as it's recorded in Luke chapter 21. And there shall be signs in the moon and the sun and the stars and upon the earth and affliction by the heathens. If we study the Greek of that passage, it certainly asserts that the peoples, literally nations, are a source of the affliction and not the object of it. Which further indicates that the beasts that dwell among us are the major source of our troubles. The affliction will be by the heathens. And that's exactly what we see in the world today. The sea and the waves roaring in difficulty, men fainting from fear, and the expectation of that coming upon the inhabited earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then they shall see the Son of Man coming in the cloud in the midst of power and much effulgence. And upon the beginning of these things happening, straighten up and raise your heads, since your redemption approaches. When we see these things happen, don't be discouraged. We should be encouraged by them and all the more resolved that the judgment of our God shall indeed come upon our enemies and, of course, his enemies. Mark thirteen twenty eight. But you learn from the parable of the fig tree when already its branches should be tender and it would produce leaves. You know that summer is near. Thusly also you, when you should see these things happening, you know that it is near by the doors. The fig tree, the fig tree from which no good fruit would ever again be produced, as we see in Matthew 21 and also here in Mark chapter 11, where it was elucidated that this fig tree was representative of Christ's mission to Jerusalem. And it says, and seeing a fig tree from afar, Having leaves, he went, if then he should find something in it. And coming to it, he found nothing except leaves, for it is not the season for figs. Of course, he knew that it wasn't time to get figs. And responding, he said to it, No longer forever should anyone eat fruit from you. Now, why would he approach the tree and curse it if he knew that it wasn't time to get figs? Because he knew damn well he wasn't going to get any fruit from the Jews. However, he went there as an example for us. The real wonder is why the hell should Christians try to think there's a good Jew today? There can be no good Jews, and there can be no good Jews for Jesus, because Christ himself told us that no good fruit would ever come from this fig tree again. The good Jews and the Jews for Jesus are only Jews with motives, seeking to even further deceive and defraud unsuspecting Christians. Today, with all of Christian society being ruled over by this race of wicked Jew, we know that our redemption is near. Verse 30. Truly I say to you that by no means should this race escape until when all these things should happen. The heaven and earth shall pass, but my words shall by no means pass. And we see that's true. But concerning that day or the hour, no one knows, neither the, messengers in, neither the messengers in heaven nor the Son, except the Father. The popular translation of the word, which means race, 
where it's usually translated as generation, is nonsense. Because Christ is predicting things that would happen both at the destruction of Jerusalem 40 years later and also at the end of the age many centuries later. The children of Israel were made to wander in the desert for 40 years so that none of the original transgressors would live to see the promised land. And therefore, we cannot expect this this passage to be referring to a generation which would be assured of living that long in order to see something quite the opposite, their punishment for disobedience. The enemies of God think that they can prevent their ultimate fate, but they will not. Nobody will escape the judgment of Christ, and here is an assurance that this race of Edomite Jews will certainly also face his wrath. This is why Paul, as well as the other apostles, always taught that the coming of Christ and the end of the age were immediately imminent, because that is how Christ taught them to act. That's what he taught them to teach. The fools and pretenders, the denizens of clowndom, who claim to know the date of the end of the world, are just that. They are fools and pretenders and clowns. It does not matter if they understand 90% of the Christian message correctly. They are all circus freaks. They cannot be Christians. Christ says bluntly here that you cannot determine at which hour, meaning at which time, the Son of Man comes. And you do not know that day. You do not know in what day your prince comes. The teachings of the apostles all understood this in the same manner, that we cannot know when he shall return or when the kingdom of our God should be restored to Israel. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 state, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. Why is that so difficult to understand? The statement that not even the Son son or Christ himself should know the day or the hour of his return is, I believe, exemplary. He said it for an example. While one particular medieval manuscript omits the words, not even the Son, here in Mark, all the earliest extant manuscripts attest to them. If Yahshua himself cannot claim to know the day or the hour, how could anyone on earth possibly know the day or the hour? Perhaps this is one issue upon which we could gauge just which of those people claiming to be Christians actually believes Christ and which do not. So forget any of the extant lies told about December 21st, 2012, or any other dates, or any of the foolish imaginings heard from false scholars and false Christians, such as Hal Lindsey or Harold Camping and other like fools, and especially the clowns promoting the so-called fifth Mayan prophecy, as if that were ever Christian. That is a disgrace. Contradicting the words of, words of Christ is, by itself, enough to unmask a man as an antichrist. Mark 13, verse 33. You watch, be wakeful, for you do not know when the time is. Period. A man traveling abroad has left his house and given to his slaves authority for each his work and orders the doorkeeper that he should be alert. Therefore, you be alert, for you do not know when the master of the house comes, whether late or at midnight, or at the cockcrow, or in the morning, 
not coming suddenly, he should find you sleeping. And that which I say to you, I say to all, be alert. When the apostles were in the garden of Gethsemane and Christ asked them to pray, he returned three times and each time he found them sleeping. At Matthew 26:41, he warned them, watch and pray that you not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is our example for today. It is easy to get caught up in the enticements of society. It is easy to get caught up in the sins of the world. But when he returns, that is certainly not where we want to be found. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. I'll be here tomorrow night with an exposition of Deuteronomy 23.2. Because a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh, not even forever. Good night. Praise Yahweh.